This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Premise Accepting Backstories. Ken's Lovecraft Class. Late 80s SF Films. And the post-war occult lull. What comes between Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever After? Every dramatic, heartbreaking, and amazing twist and turn of every fairy tale ever told, that's what. Exactly! That's why our friends over at Atlas Games made the storytelling card game Once Upon a Time. Players create an exciting story together using the card elements from fairy tales. It encourages creativity, decision-making, and cooperation. This classic design by James Wallace and Andrew Rilston has been called one of the top storytelling games of all time. Some might even say the greatest storytelling game of all time. Once Upon a Time is about princesses overcoming danger, foxes dueling pirates, kings searching for lost crowns, and every other fairy tale plot players can imagine. Players tell their own fairy tale using elements on the cards and try to steer the conclusion toward their secret ending. Themes can be all-ages friendly or more mature, depending on the players at the table. Go over to atlas-games.com by May 31st and use coupon code ONCE2023 to get a free expansion when you purchase any three Once Upon a Time titles. The Rattle of Dice, The Thump of Miniatures, The Crunch of Doritos... The benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Let me see. Dice skill 12. Miniatures. Dexterity. It better be low so they thump. Oh, Kenny, you still working on your character? Uh, let's see. Uh, Dependence Doritos. Weeks daily. Your character. And uh, patron god Peter Frampton. Okay. My PC is he's ready. Got him all set up. Because today, Robin, we're talking about preparing our PC. Not just their sheet. But even in games with tiny sheets, their extensive backstory to make yourself a premise acceptor, the best kind of PC. Robin, I think yes, we've all agreed on that. the best kind of player, even. Well, that too. So, we've talked a bit before about the sort of blue booking aspect of creating an elaborate past biography for your character, mm-hmm. which some people love to do. Other people prefer to show up with their character sheet, finish filling in the numbers, and then hit the ground and figure out who they're playing partway through. Mm -hmm. But if you are the PC biographer type, we're going to look at how to create that biography so that it slots well into uh, what the GM does and what the other players will do around you. Uh, We've talked about this in general before. This is a subset of the previous advice, which is to look for ways to make this apparently solitary pursuit of writing your character biography Uh, create portals and windows and stairways in it to allow it to be collaborative so that it uh, not only matters in play, sometimes people will write a long biography and it'll be in their head. No one else will ever know anything about it. Uh, So have something that matters in play. And in this case, for this segment, matters in a way that forwards the plot along and moves the story. And the advantage of that is that uh, you 
get to be the center of attention if you're clever right. enough to you do it. You get to be part of the story instead of also featuring. Right. So you get the fun of having this elaborate character in your head and everybody else gets the fun of having that matter and mean something and, and move the story forward. So Ken, what is would be your first tip for the person sitting down, ready to uh, write about, uh, you know, their shimmering elf and how are you going to make your shimmering elf not only have a, a long, uh, interesting story, as all Shimmering Elves are known to do, but mm. something that will make you a story forwarder. Well, uh, first of all, get as many hints from the GM as you can about the sort of story you're telling. So if it is a horror story, give your character lots of horror hooks. I go over them in, you know, Nightmares of Mine and GURPS Horror. I think I've told this anecdote numerous times on this podcast, but it's always a good one where my friend Josh, as he's joining the uh, Unknown Armies game, turns to me and says, is it all right if my character is under his grandfather's blood curse, but doesn't know it? And, you know, that is the gift that kept on giving, certainly in that game. And Josh, of course, wanted to be part of the occult horror that was unknown armies it works a treat so right. and that's a piece of advice number two which mm -hmm. is don't just find out what it is that you're doing but pitch something to your gm early to right. get them thinking exactly so if you show up on the first day and go oh by the way i thought i wanted to uh, be under a blood curse that i don't even know about then the gm has to go okay well this is the one where they go into the haunted house i guess I can't really figure out how to do that with this one, but maybe later. But if you give them advance warning, they, oh, well, okay, the blood curse. Well, this happens to be the house where your grandfather was killed. And that's the thing you'll discover in the course of this. So the GM in particular needs time to incorporate you into their plans and will be very happy most of the time. You know, the better the GM and or the lazier the GM, the more <laughs> they will like it. Let them know ahead of time what it is you want to do so that by nature, the, the thing that you think is interesting about your character's past will be part of the, the story because the GM has already got it as part of their homework. Right. And that's just generally good advice anyway to, you know, do as much of the work as far up front as you can so that the GM can work things in. Like I say, if the genre is, you know, torrid romance, either give them a, a, a long lost love that they can moon over or give them a tempestuous and passionate nature demonstrated by a, a string of broken hearts, possibly all theirs uh, in their past so that they can fall into the story willingly and or nillingly, you know, whatever the tone is, try and write your character so that they will fit into that tone. There's sort of standard ones. Give your character a big family full of mysterious uncles and brothers and cousins and sisters that they haven't been keeping track of, uh, that they're in foreign parts and so that they can show up in danger or uh, have uh, left you a haunted house or whatever it is you need to have. So, you know, no uh, moody loners who care nothing for society or their family uh, living on a crag. Right. Or, or if you are a, a moody loner, I think there's a, an intersection point between people who like to write character backstories and people who like moody loners is set up an arc that explains why over the course of play you will become less of a moody loner you mm -hmm. don't yet have a group of people who you need you don't know you need them but there's this hole in your life that a group of people let's say a group of adventurous misfits might actually fill the challenge there is the question of do you want to be a premise acceptor at all and I'm going to say that 
yes, you do. And if you don't, you should start mm-hmm. uh, because that's more fun. Right. Some people do enjoy playing a character who is withholding that everybody has to petition in order to go forward and move the story ahead. And if you are subject to that flaw, here's your opportunity <laughs> to, to buy it off. <laughs> give yourself notes to remind you not to do that. Right. So uh, even if you are a, a moody loner assassin who's not used to dealing with other people who is, you know, raised in a basement by robots, you have a yearning to be with other people or to understand what it is that's going on. Or you just have a mission that you know you need other people to fulfill that you will at first grudgingly accept and then later come to, you know, have some sort of connection to so that maybe you're a moody loner, but you really need the the key that will unlock the vault that your comatose family is in. And so, you know, you have a reason to go and do things rather than saying, no, let's not do things. Yeah. And another thing that you can possibly do is if there's more than one of you uh, in the group that are backstory writers, you can lay trails between your characters. Maybe they're known. It's like, oh, we met you know, uh, if we're both elves, we met a hundred years ago in such and such a, a forest and we had good adventures and uh, found some uh, rich acorns and, uh, and, and uh, you know, split them equably and have always thought of that as a great time so that when we meet again, it'll be a glad falling upon each other's shoulders. Or it could be a, you know, an unknown thing where it's like one elf has got a, a cousin, Glythandrel, who, you know, showed up out of nowhere bringing magic mushrooms. And the other elf has got a, an aunt Glythandrel who took all the magic mushrooms from their village and, and left and no one knows, knows what happens to them. And then now you have a, you know, a, a connection and a question about why did the mushrooms have to do that? What's going on with these, with these mushrooms? What's that story? And that, you know, if you let your GM know that, this is what your elves are uh, interested in. Sure enough, there's going to be all kinds of fungus people and and weird psychedelic monsters in your future, I expect. Right. And so the trick then is to imagine your character doing stuff that interests you. Ideally. <laughs> yes. And then figuring out why you would rope other people into it. And that saves you from the pitfall where it's like, well, why are we doing this? It's like, well, it's your job to figure out why you're doing it. So if the GM gives you ahead of time what the mission is. You know, we're going to, there's this terrible artifact and uh, you're going to discover this awful device that can destroy the world. And you're going to go to the edge of the world in order to throw it off. And so that it falls into space on the edge of the flat earth. And so, you know, you've got a journey ahead of you. And the first question that you're going to need to work into your biography is to incorporate that premise, incorporate your acceptance of the premise into your backstory. So what is it about you that makes you want to make sure that you destroy that artifact? So that could be all sorts of answers. That could be, you know, you have had a terrible vision of the apocalyptic future. It could be that you have grown up ever since you were a wee sprat as part of a family that is uh, sworn to destroy the artifact. It could be that the souls of your ancestors were used to create the artifact and that by destroying it, uh, you will free them and allow them to go to the afterlife. So come up with a specific reason for you to accomplish the mission that you know about, if there is one. If it's a more general sort of episodic thing of you know, we fight crime. Well, hmm, what backstory, character backstories are there where people are motivated to mm. fight crime? And, Let's uh, see, if mm, only, what if can only we, we could of? think of one. Well, that would be an idea for a comic book. It would they be. should have one or, of those, Rob. Or perhaps half of them. Yeah, right. And part of it is just going to be, the more picaresque and, and open the universe, 
the more your backstory is going to, I think, either depend on the, the scattering of relatives effect or the personal drive effect. So, you know, if you're on a starship and you're uh, going out into space, exploring strange new worlds, you know, what about you made, made you join Starfleet instead of stay home and, uh, you know, be in the science academy or, or, you know, grow avocados on Mars or whatever it was that other people do who, who don't join Starfleet. And, you can give yourself a, an inner drive that then played out previously in your backstory. And so when you're all on the you know bridge of the ship together, explaining how you got there, or it comes up when you're all thrown back in your past by encounters with some sort of advanced alien God spirit, you'll have that ready. You'll, you'll be able to, the GM will have it ready and you'll have it ready. And so there won't be a lot of, um, I guess you lived in Oregon space Oregon. And then, uh, you know, you, you're, you're set. And, uh, and the story that you've posed yourself can be recapitulated in the story of the game. And once more, as you pointed out at the beginning of this, you become the, the star in the focus because you were the one who said, Oh, I've got a, a psychic void that only an encounter with a, a godlike alien can fill. And if it is a campaign where everybody sort of has the same premise, right? You're members of Starfleet. If you've looked at, any Star Trek show over the years, eventually they all get around to having the monologue where the character explains why they joined Starfleet. And so this is an opportunity not just to make sure that you have a reason to do the things that are part of the plot, which in a way is sort of solved by part of the premise, but also to say something about your character, right? It matters if you have always wanted to resolve your Vulcan and human halves of your nature and that joining Starfleet seemed like the way to work that out, that tells you who you are as a character, as well as providing this uh, plot justification. If, you know, your family has always been in Starfleet and you want to live up to that tradition, that's another answer. And that tells us something very specific about your character. And so you might want to consult with everybody else to make sure that you have uh, different answers. And that's, you know, why a, a process where if you have a, you know, Slack or Discord for your game group, you can all kind of throw ideas out there. You shouldn't necessarily expect the players who like to wing it and show up and make stuff up as they go along, come up with stuff and material that will help you spend hours writing your story ahead of time. But you've already done all that stuff. So your work will pay off because they'll sort of be hooking into what it is that you've already decided to do. But at the I guess the Uber point uh, as we're heading toward a resolution of this segment is to think about play and what will happen in play, not just the exercise about writing a character biography and think about the other players and why they may enjoy interacting with your character. And if your character is a cowardly grump who hates adventure, who was tricked into joining Starfleet and wants to get out at the earliest convenience, build in the reason why that will suddenly become interesting and why your character will suddenly become non-annoying to everyone else. <laughs> and that is the trick of moving from sort of thinking of yourself in isolation and thinking of yourself as part of a collaborative group who are all creating something together. And it's not their job to have to put up with everything you want to create an experiment with. It's your job and their job to throw each other the ball and to pass it back and forth. Well, Robin, uh, according to my extensive backstory, 
I'm the kind of guy who likes a podcast segment to be a tight 15 and to end when another commercial shows up. So maybe we should play that for a bit. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. It's time once more for Among My Many Hats. This, of course, is the segment where the covert self-promotion of every segment and every episode turns into the overt self-promotion of a particular project that one of us has in the pipeline. And this time around, uh, Ken, you're going to talk about something that our listeners, should they desire it, could take part in. Indeed. Because you have started teaching classes online through Signum University, which is an online school with a humanities focus. And they have a cool acronym, SPACE! Signum portals for adult continuing education. And I am led to believe that (laughs) Thursdays in July, people who are available from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern can take your course, H.P. Lovecraft, Maker of Modern Horror. That is exactly the case. I did it in January. That was sort of the pilot program. That was not for two-hour sessions. That was eight one-hour sessions, but the scheduling didn't work. July being a more jambly up month than January, even outside Chicago. So we're doing the two hour lectures. We'll see how that goes. But it was uh, good fun. I I had about 13 students. They all seemed to uh, enjoy it. It was sort of a survey. I think we had people of all varying levels of Lovecraft experience and knowledge. But the assumption is we're all going to read some of the core Lovecraftian texts. I will talk about them, not just you know, what they mean in Lovecraft's life, but kind of what they're trying to accomplish in horror. And then the bigger job of explicating Lovecraft as the, you know, clearly, and I think this is hardly even controversial by now, clearly the seminal figure in America in transforming horror from 19th century supernatural horror to 20th century science fictional horror, while also making it possible to tell gothic, gothic horror stories in uh, the 20th century idiom. And that's sort of the, you know, every one of the stories, you know, sort of points to that a little bit. We talk about, you know, the sources and the influences and then go through the story, talk about themes and all that good lit crit stuff. And uh, at the end, I hope everyone gets a little bit of a sense of Lovecraft's, you know, at the very least, they have an excuse to read Lovecraft, which is good. And uh, they have maybe a sense of Lovecraft's place at the keystone 
of uh, 20th century horror creation. And that's sort of the point of the class. It's like I say, it's adult continuing education. I don't think anyone is going to, you know, uh, rush out and get a doctorate on the basis of this, but that's not really the point. The point is to share a little knowledge and let people who have been Lovecraft curious become Lovecraft knowledgeable. So if listeners have been, first of all, hearing you talk about Lovecraft on the podcast for a while and uh, possibly read your tour to Lovecraft books, is there a deeper level that you'll be able to present to them in this format? Or are they telling their other Lovecraft curious friends about this? Well, I mean, I think that the less you know about Lovecraft, the more you'll get out of the class because it is a survey. It's not advanced Lovecraft. We don't go, you know, super deep. There's not going to be, you know, close readings of the texts. It's just not that kind of class because, you know, the, the audience of general Lovecraft curious is bigger. I think that just, you know, given that I learned things writing the uh, lectures in January, I feel like people will learn something. But, you know, it's it, it is a survey. And so the, the amount of Lovecraft that, you know, you know, you'll you'll bring it with you. And so you'll maybe be able to think, you know, different thoughts when you're when you're in the lecture than the people who are just hearing Yith. What is Yith for the first time? Well, that, that was an, an easy invitation for a softball question. What did you learn? You who have, or are steeped in the world of tentacles. What did you learn by taking your knowledge and formatting it into these lectures? Well, I'll tell you the, the interesting thing is I had sort of vaguely known that, I mean, obviously Lovecraft over and over and over says that his God of fiction is Poe. And he talks about Poe's influence. And I had, as a matter of general laziness, thought, well, Poe is a big influence on the early Lovecraft, the sort of prolix, purple, outsider era Lovecraft. But eventually, Mackin settles him down and he becomes HP. But as you go through the stories and every story that we cover, I would think, what are the influences on this story? And I would go look some of them up in Joshi or I would look some of them up in uh, Hefley or other authorities. And then I would read the story and think, all right, what are some other obvious sources here? And Poe keeps coming back, most especially Fall of the House of Usher. That is a, that, that's a story that Lovecraft keeps coming back to from his very, almost his very earliest stories all the way through to Haunter of the Dark is another Fall of the House of Usher, you know, remake model, uh, another strongly influenced by. And so I kept, you know, stumbling over not just Poe, but that Poe story throughout the works. And that, that very much interested me. And I don't, I mean, we're not going to, you know, turn this into Lovecraft and Poe best buddies a hundred years apart, but it is something that really impressed me as I was doing it. And then that some of them are just little specific, you know, facts. Like there was a story about a dinosaur that hatches out that was published in weird tales in the you know, 1934, 33 Lovecraft read it. And he said, what a insufferably boring version of that cool story and that's what sort of got him, you know, started on the thought of Shadow Out of Time was this. Someone wrote a really terrible dinosaur story and he said, there has to be a better story than this. So we've got two examples of Lovecraft drawing on influences. One, the positive influence of Poe. This is so great. I'm going to keep coming back to it and keep mining it. And then the negative influence of this dinosaur story sucked. I can do a better one. So it's probably not a big mystery why that dinosaur story is boring. What is it about Usher that makes it this wellspring that Lovecraft needs to keep returning to? I think part of the thing that Lovecraft loves about Usher, part of it is the architecture 
of the story. I mean, it's a story about architecture. It's literally about the House of Usher, the physical house. And it has this sort of, you know, very perfect quest. You know, you can see the turns coming. You go around. There's little hairpin bends in the narrative. It foregrounds sound uh, very strongly. Uh, so the notion of a sense that is not sight, I think, really appeals to Lovecraft. He obviously doesn't have a lot of direct sympathy with the obsessive and forbidden love of a brother and a sister, but he definitely had the experience of someone in my family is probably in a different situation than they would like the world to think they are. And so this, you know, there's probably a lot of family memory coming back. It's also for Poe a little more measured. It gets hysterical, but it gets hysterical exactly, you know, by turns as the story moves through it, it does not begin uh, in a shriek like black cat does. It's just, it's a story that I think appeals to Lovecraft aesthetically, even more than other Poe does. And again, the notion of, you know, the physical house is falling, the family is falling, the structure of rationality is falling, the questions of literature are are brought in with the, the mad tryst being a, you know, a story within a story that mise en beam is, is another thing that Lovecraft loves, that kind of mirror narration that goes on in Usher. It's just, you know, the more you read it to figure out what Lovecraft loved about it, the more things you find in it that you know, obviously Lovecraft pulls out and it's down from, you know, the, the sort of sickening swamp, the tarn around the lake through the, the weird auditory hallucinations. Again, Lovecraft even wrote, you know, things that are not dead and come back to life and uh, destroy you. That's like literally sitting here right now, just realized you could paint Call of Cthulhu as a fall of the House of Usher, except that the House of Usher is mankind. And, uh, the, the sister that we thought was safely dead is our, you know, our old uh, divine impulse. Now, one thing that I think that medium experienced GMs could get out of this is how to explain Lovecraft to other people, <laughs> which is to watch you do it to a class. How do you start introducing Lovecraft to people who maybe know the name and know that this is someone who's influential in horror, and that was enough for them to sign up for the course. Where do you start? Well, the first of all, we start with them reading the readings for the first lecture, which is Dagon from Beyond, Eric Zahn, and a little bit of the essay in defense of Dagon. Actually, I asked them to read all of it, but only part of it is, is uh, relevant. I encourage them to sort of skip through it. So that gets them that, and then there's also a lecture that sort of tries to indicate you know, the milieu that Lovecraft grew up in, not just, you know, his own personal life, which is wild enough, but, you know, what was happening in America, what uh, was happening in the sciences, things that immediately concerned Lovecraft so that you can place him in history. And then we just, you know, go into talking about Lovecraft constructing, you know, the, the, the first beginnings of his writings. And so we, for people who aren't really familiar with Lovecraft, they'll sort of discover him as we go through the readings. And, you know, I, I feel like for something that was every three or four days, it's not that much reading. I mean, it's in this case, three short stories and a long essay, which I feel like anyone can do in a day or a night. And then if it's for the two hours, it'll, you'll add cats of all thar, rats of the walls and cool air. That'll be the first two. So again, that's, it's not a heavy lift. And by the time you've read those, stories, you at least have some idea of who Lovecraft is, and then you get surprised by the left turn when we get into uh, Charles Dexter Ward and Call of Cthulhu. So what is the format of the two-hour session going to be? How much of it is a lecture? How much discussion? How does it go? Well, the one-hour sessions turned out to be about 40 minutes of lecture, 40 to 45, 
And then people could ask questions in the chat because it's done over Zoom. And I would try and address the questions in the lecture as they popped up. And then at the end, we would have a sort of open discussion. And sometimes I, I think, I don't know if it was this first batch luck of the draw, but there was about two or three people that had, you know, sort of a big curiosity and energy and a bunch of people were, I assume, sitting and thinking, stroking their chins about all the wisdom they just had. They weren't stunned into insensibility at all. And so I assume that with the two hour format, I'm going to maybe try not to lecture for an hour and a half straight. I, I may break it up and do, you know, a 40 minute lecture, a little questions, and then back to the second lecture. I feel like that will make more sense than me having to drive through, you know, almost uh, two hours of material in a row. Right. So uh, if you think this would interest you or someone you know, uh, look up Signum University as we're recording this. I don't think the class is being promoted for sign up yet, but that'll be real soon. I, I think it actually has made. So um, you should be able to sign up for it if you want to. Or you could tell Signum uh, what other classes that you would take from uh, particular uh, worthies that uh, might be willing to uh, give them. So Ken, best of luck. Uh, don't get chalk dust all over you. And uh, best of luck to your uh, students as they encounter the Eldritch. We're now going to encounter a beautiful commercial and an even more beautiful segment on the other side. The Best of Asphagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English, that's Swedish, not English, you can delight in every original issue of Phoenix and the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Accept the premise of this podcast by joining such heroic Patreon backers as Peter Darby, Chihiro Yamada, Garrett Fitzgerald, Hyperlexic, and James Kyle. Once more, we walk down the increasingly lurid and continually sticky carpet to our seats in the center seat, to so the center aisle of the Cinema Hut, where, we're, where we settle down to watch the Science Fiction Cinema Essentials Film Festival. And when we settle down, when I settle ourselves down, it's 1987. We are heading out of the greatest decade of science fiction, but not heading out at speed because we got a lot of movies. They're still coming thick and fast. They're coming thick and fast. It's still, may not be 1982 or 1986, but it's still the 80s. And what's more 80s than blowing up commies in Nicaragua with Arnold Schwarzenegger in a little adventure film that I like to call Predator. But it turns out, Robin, it's more than just commies that await Arnold down there in the jungle. There's also 
dare I say, a predator, an invisible alien bounty hunter. Yes. So this is, once again, another example of uh, we're now in the heyday of science fiction cinema, I think is pretty much developed at this point. And so now we're starting to see often the question in the cycle is what other genre is it? And mm-hmm. this one, it obviously is another war movie. It's another, it's an action movie, of course, as well, but structurally and in terms of its motifs, it's a lost patrol style war movie. This is the second one in a cycle and it establishes a cycle. We've looked at different cycles so far, the space exploration movie, the space messiah, the rebel against the authoritarian order. And now we've got a new cycle beginning Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicles. (laughs) Uh, And there's a bunch of them. And this is uh, one of the really solid ones and establishes a new cool science fiction monster. And so, of course, there's another crossover with uh, horror. And it's just an effective cool elevated drive-in movie uh, directed by John McTiernan, who uh, is on a roll at this point. And it's, uh, you know, another star in the uh, monster alien firmament. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, McTiernan's second film after Nomads. And he is going to basically produce an uninterrupted string of bangers and then go away for a while. This benefits greatly from the supporting cast, Carl Weathers and Jesse Ventura as sort of the, the cool and the hot on either side of Schwarzenegger. So we have a, a bit of, you know, old school drama along with our sort of Golan Globus adventure production values and then our superb alien and the, you know, if you read about how this movie was made and all the contingencies that went into picking that predator and, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme was supposed to play the predator and then he got mad that he had to be in the suit the whole time and he had to be invisible and so he quit and then they had to sort of scramble around. The amount of last minuting that produced what on the screen is as tight and perfect a uh, a story of of literal humanity going all the way back to sort of the internal human predator uh, represented by Schwarzenegger versus the alien. It calls back to those 50s monster movies and 50s invasion movies while also being very much of its time and having kind of a great deal to say about, you know, what McTiernan thought about people in the 80s as well as always. So it's a it, it, it's got a lot more to it than just an amazingly cool invisible monster. But in fairness, if that's all it had, it would probably still be an essential. Now we come to a figure who dies and is resurrected, but it's not a, a Messiah story. It's way back to the uh, literary origins of science fiction because we have a Frankenstein story. But this is Frankenstein with a badge because it's Paul Verhoeven's Robocop from 1987. Peter Weller in the titular role. Also has great performances by Nancy Allen, Ronnie Cox, and a, a particularly great street-level villain psycho performance by Kurt Wood Smith. This is Verhoeven's sort of satirical disturber of Moray's vein at its height, and also undoubtedly his best just action-y action film. And uh, it's a interesting mix of the sort of the dystopian look at the city, which is sort of picking up from Escape from New York, but is just extremely well executed. So again, we're hitting uh, science fiction films that are no longer establishing entirely new categories, but mixing and matching and recapitulating others in this vast, rich stream of motifs that previous films have uh, left for people to uh, play with and mix and match. Yeah, RoboCop hits a really sweet satire point because as you say it it continues that sort of reactionary urban crime is out of hand only supernatural means or science fictional means can control it vibe but it's also very much a critique of you know corporate america of 
corporate government partnerships, which was barely even yes. a thing in the 80s. The, the corporate solution, or the government solution is worse than the problem. Exactly. And in league with the problem. And in league with the problem. And so it, it, it manages to have that perfect sweet spot, that target rich environment for a satire of firing in every direction and always landing a hit. The screenplay is uh, superb. It's by a guy named Edward Neumeyer, who I think this is his peak work. And, you know, have that on your resume. You hardly need another work. And the effects, it's one of the last gasps of practical effects. I think Phil Tippett did the the RoboCop animation and the, and the other robots. It's both perfectly of its time, and it's also an ever more relevant movie because the sort of disintegration of civil society accelerated by corporate malfeasance and government uh, sloth and turpitude somehow remains with us despite this movie having said, those are bad, Robin. Right. And it also has a somewhat sour take on the, the critique of hedonism. And now a chunk of this is basically in the background. The way television is in the future is sort of a, a Neil Postman critique of how terrible uh, TV is. You know, I'll buy that for a dollar is mm-hmm. the, uh, the refrain from the terrible show that plays in the background, uh, which starts off with something that we first see in cinema in Fahrenheit 451 and is carrying through to this. And we know that uh, you live in a dystopia because your televised entertainment is terrible and exploitative. And oh, wait, hmm. before I think of that further, another dystopia. This is I think we're mentioning it. It's not an essential, but it fits both in the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle category and in the uh, dystopia category and then the dystopic games sub subcategory because this is uh, the running man directed by paul michael glazer from 1987 and uh, we're gonna see more dystopic games going forward and this is just a fun basic well done but not astounding example of that if, if i'm if i remember correctly isn't arnold schwarzenegger an operative of the corrupt order who then rebels against it and is forced into the games. The games are emceed by the great Richard Dawson. Again, his whole career has obviously led to that. And it is a a wonderful satire. It's, you know, it's a little broader. It doesn't hit as perfectly as, as RoboCop, but at the moment it was, it made quite a statement. It was a good stretch for Arnold to sort of move out of his comfort zone, but he's still playing sort of an indomitable hero. It's just a, a terrific little package. Sadly, in my opinion, it does not really become essential, but it is kind of essential for understanding how the 80s were dealing with the medium and how the medium was dealing with the 80s. Right. I guess it's part of our mentionable subcategory. Right. Yes. But definitely an essential, even though arguably has some uh, ragged execution edges due to its influence on sort of the meme sphere, I think, as, as much as anything else and on the culture. This was definitely something that came out utterly died mm-hmm. in theatrical and then was discovered on video on home video and uh blew and now is a core part of the science fiction uh, imagery and culture and that's john carpenter's they live from 1988 uh, this of course is the one in which roddy piper stumbles across a pair of uh, glasses that allows him to see the alien automaton domination of the world. And so this has the same media landscape, but it turns out it's evil alien robots controlling us. And then once he knows that's happening, uh, like Kevin McCarthy in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, he has to do something about it. And the people around him just don't want to believe it. This is Carpenter starting to get into the phase of his career where he's getting a little laid back about stuff like editing and <laughs> uh, and uh, framing and stuff. And so it's uh, 
uh, not necessarily as tight as his previous things, but again, uh, on a thematic level and on a, a fun level, this is uh, has to go in the essentials pile. Yeah, and it is uh, again. It's it's very much the invasion of the body snatchers story. It's just what if everyone was cool with it, which is the really scary part of the body snatcher story as opposed to the zombie story. If zombies show up, no one is cool with it. We all know what to do. But when the body snatchers take over and they're the majority, this is sort of the I am legend version of that, where if you're the one guy who can see the truth, you become the threat, you become the monster. So in that way, it's an, a, a fun inversion of, of that story as well. Also, Roddy Piper and Keith David put together maybe one of the best fist fight scenes in American cinema. I mean, there's <laughs> maybe four others as good. Yes, but it's also a great joke because it yeah. goes on way longer than you think it ought to. In part, I think, is a nod to Piper as a wrestler and, and possibly a producer told Carpenter to make the fight scene really long and make sure there was one. And in a way, he's sort of sticking the nose up on that one and, you know, dragging it on even further than it needs to be. And that becomes part of the crazy fun of it. Yeah, I saw it actually in the theater. But as you say, I may have been one of the only ones. And it uh, definitely hit hard at the time. And it was just John Carpenter's bad luck with cinema releases, I guess. But anyway, it remains an essential, somewhat like the uh, dystopia on the other side of the world, Akira, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo, an uh, anime film from 1988. And that, you know, pun intended, is sort of the ground zero, not just for a lot of anime in Japan got, you know, sort of its DNA scrambled by Akira, but every piece of anime released in America was released through the lens of and in reflection of Akira. I mean, I think until the Studio Ghibli era, I mean, the Akira was it. And if you didn't have a, a motorcycle that slid sideways and a lone mutant who was fighting against the whole system, you weren't anime and we didn't care to watch you. It was uh, an astonishing thing to watch on the big screen in an American cinema. I think it hit like American, you know, either late 88 or early 89. And it was... uh Kind of a big game changer in in the same way that, you know, when Hong Kong cinema started to come to America the next couple of years, it was a similar, oh, that's what you can do kind of moment. And I feel like it may have influenced a lot of filmmakers in America, not necessarily the animated ones, but the regular ones that are saying, oh, this is this is spectacle. This is what we have to catch up with. And Akira is, like I said, it's the story of a, a mutant who's built by, I, I think it's a secret government corporate project again, in the ruins of Neo-Tokyo, when he contains within him the same destructive apocalyptic power that destroyed old Tokyo, which is understood to be an atomic discharge of some kind. And then he's chased around by the guys that made him. It's a, an angry Frankenstein, not dissimilar, I guess, in some ways to the original Frankenstein, except that the apocalypticism is, is way more out front than it is in Mary Shelley's novel. Yeah, I can't think of a lot of happy Frankenstein stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he comes back, he does some gardening. Yes, I, I think the, the interesting thing about this is its visual impact and its style. And I think the observation that I would uh, head for is that somehow the cyberpunk genre wound up being better realized in animated form uh, than it was in live action. There, had, there are a number of attempts to do it and do it as well as Blade Runner did it in a way that inspired William Gibson and the literary version of cyberpunk. But this is one of the big exponents of that. I find that I'm glad that you are describing the plot of this. And when we come to a, our next anime in a future segment, I'll be glad that you're going to be explaining the plot of that because the 
plot is never quite the thing in uh in anime it's there but it is about i think uh vibe and style and action and movement and definitely this is one of the things that will go on to influence other people who will start to like how do we do this in live action and the answer to that is cgi cgi is how they'll try that's how we do it uh next we come to a title that is sort of from 1988 but is also sort of not out yet. <laughs> and I'm interested to hear how you've seen it because I have not seen it. This is a film that was filmed in 1988 when Poland was still a part of the Eastern Bloc by Andrzej Zalowski, uh, who's known for Possession and uh, some other trippy genre movies and some also some uh, straight historical dramas. But the Polish film authorities took a look at a chunk of this film and said, you're stopping right here. And now it's out enough for you to have seen it, but not out enough for me to have seen it. So Ken, as our final essential for this segment, tell us about On the Silver Globe. Yeah, On the Silver Globe. I figure we can't have a science fiction essential series without at least one alternate history. And this is not an alternate history. This is a very normal, if I can use that word about this film, planetary exploration and social science fiction. But the alternate history is... Zalowski is making this movie in 1977. He gets about three quarters of the way through it, and the government takes a look at him saying, oh, that's odd. Society and government work hand in hand to oppress people. And they say, ho, 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 not all governments, surely not communist government. You can't mean that. And Zulowski's like, well, I, these are aliens. You can't really blame. And then boom, it, the hammer comes down. But if Zalowski had been able to finish the film and it had been available for people to watch in 1977, I feel like it would have had an even bigger effect than Ikari 1B did because I think the art film ecosystem was bigger. There was more opportunities for filmmakers to see an East Block science fiction film. And it is very 70s. It was made in 1977. It's uh, about those concerns. Uh, very briefly, the story is three astronauts travel to a distant planet. There's a crash. They're the only survivors. They decide to create a new society on the planet by having, you know, children with each other. One of the astronauts, you know, is still alive and old. The children hyper evolve because the planet makes them grow up super fast. So by the time he's an aged, mysterious hill figure, there's generations of sort of this weird inbred barbarian society on the planet. Decades later, a space engineer gets a message from that planet that's sent by the only survivor, goes out to see what happened, is greeted as a messiah by this hideous inbred society. He takes them on a war against their winged alien foes, the Sherns, and then dis discovers. So he's a messiah. It's also a social science fiction picture, but he's also a messiah. And he discovers, hold on. I'm just falling into the pattern of this weird, gross barbarian society. And they also are thinking he's not a messiah. He's just a guy. We shouldn't be following him. And he's evil for making us think he's a messiah. So that comes to its natural conclusion, except that it doesn't because the film's not finished. So there's a lot of sort of cobbled in scenes from modern day. I think Japan that sort of close out the movie a little bit. And then Zulowski does narration as to what would have been there if he'd been allowed to finish the film. And this, Came out in 1988. It went to Cannes. It won the Palme d'Or, I think partly as a result of, you know, sticking it to communist Poland, but also partly because it is a visual riot, even in the terrible Internet Archive version that uh, if you are very, very patient, you can download and watch. It is far from the ideal way to see it, but it is enough for me to say if this movie had come out in 77, 
it really would have made a mark and, and left a difference. And it's still, you can sort of, you know, it, it's not, it's not completely without, I mean, you should see it anyway, if you can, and ideally in a better way than I did. But right. Well, there is a new, more restored version. Yeah. That is, uh, I'm not sure what its current status is, but it's not yet widely available. Yeah. It might be on, you know, coming out on Blu-ray or something at some point, but when it does come out either, you know, on a revival tour or on a nice disc version from something from Criterion or somebody, it's, it's certainly worth getting just as a, as a, as a sort of a deep, visual, you know, speculative movie with a lot of, you know, human conflict as well as sort of bigger science fictional story, but it's also even more a what might have been a document. And I think that's really why it belongs as a science fictional, science fiction essential in that way. Right. So sometimes a thing can come out and disappear and have no influence, but still be worth putting on our uh, list for what it's doing. And speaking of lists, it's time for us to uh, close up our list uh, this time. Head on out to the lobby, see what other segment we can get to from the lobby, uh, and we'll be back with more Cinema Essentials next week. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to walk up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing room and wave to the mystic salamander painting. It's going to wave back because it's just that kind of painting. And we're going to head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist. This time around, the parlor looks a bit mid-century because beloved Patreon backer Gerald Sears asks, mysticism, spirituality, cults, and strange religion abound in 20th century America, but not so much in the 40s or 50s. I realize the 40s were taken up by the war, but the 50s seem to be lacking in mystic shenanigans, at least in the U.S., seems like there was a homogenization of religious practice then. Am I missing something? What were the big doers, goings-on, and other mystic shenanigans in the early atomic age? Well, first of all, Gerald, you are not wrong. The big explosion of cults and weird behavior that really kind of began with the launch of New Thought and Pentecostalism simultaneously around the turn of the century and blew up in the 20s and continued blowing up through the 30s does indeed taper off. There is just 
there's a, a pattern to fads and fashions in occultism as there is in everything else. You know, the, uh, the magazine occult review shrank its page count from 16 pages to eight pages. This was a, basically a, an ad supported, you know, everything going on in the occult and then look in the back for your palm reader in your area. And that, you know, halved its uh, page count basically not just because of wartime paper rationing, but because of wartime, nobody caring. And obviously the sixties, you know, the uh, first popular tarot deck book in America comes out in 1960. Morning the Magicians comes out in 1960. So many things begin in 1960 that restart the great expansion of nonsense. But there is stuff going on because this is still America. It is still a country full of folks who don't want to listen to your nonsense. They want their own nonsense. And some of the energy that more normally goes into stuff that we might game with often gets spilled over whenever Pentecostalism has an eruption because it draws the same sort of spiritual quester who doesn't approve of mainstream Christianity, but wants a more personal connection to the divine or the mystical. And those folks tend to get drawn into Pentecostalism. And in fact, in 1946, a guy named William Branham launches what is known as the Healing Revival Movement. And he's an idiosyncratic Pentecostal preacher. There are a lot of people in Pentecostalism, the more, you know, stayed, if you can use that word about Pentecostals, who are saying Branham is a a heretic, he's talking wrong. And even Branham eventually says, well, I was uh, in the grip of revelatory madness. Uh, So things I said might not count. Um, The name you're more familiar with, I'll bet, than uh, William Branham, who is problematic in his own right, is Oral Roberts, who begins as a healing revivalist and then rapidly turns that into a radio preaching show and then into a, you know, one of the first mega churches. So a lot of other Pentecostal and charismatic ministers are pouring all over North America, giving revivals and having mass healing ceremonies, which is something that was relatively new uh, in American history. We hadn't seen that. Maybe you go back to the old camp revivals in the 1800s. Right. So there's sort of a wave and a counter wave pattern, right? There's a pool of people who are questers, they're questioning, they're looking for something, and these things sort of rise like a crest and then they crash away. So you could argue not that necessarily that Pentecostalism and its relatives replace the occult every so often, but from the other point of view, I guess they would argue that, you know, when our Pentecostalism gets weaker, the occult moves in. Exactly. The devil does his work. And uh, speaking of the devil doing his work, one of the uh, people inspired by, healed by, sent out to missionary by William Branham is Jim Jones, who founds the People's Temple in 1955 as a social gospel Pentecostalism blend in which there is a very, very strong ministering to the uh, the poor and dispossessed and downtrodden, which ends in the 70s, as so many things end in horror and unpleasantness. Speaking of horror and unpleasantness, the Summit Lighthouse, which is a splinter cult from the I Am St. Germain worshiping movement that was founded in the 20s. Which we've discussed in a previous segment. We have. A lot of this is going to be we've discussed in a previous segment. The I Am Splinter Cult Summit Lighthouse is founded in 1958 by uh, Mark Prophet. 
he uh, really gets a fire lit under him, no pun intended, when he marries Elizabeth Clare Prophet uh, in the 60s, and they found eventually the Church Universal Triumphant, which has got all manner of fun connections, certainly on a, on FBI bulletin boards across this fair land. Right. I mean, he's also a DC Comics character because his last name is what he is. He's his, a his prophet, yes. Nominative determinism lets you know you're a DC villain. The other thing that is the big drawer of the energy from new uh, religions and mysticism in generally are the UFO cults. You know, Arnold sees the flying saucer in uh, 1947. So that, you know, blows up. Georgia Damsky uh, claims to have seen flying saucers in 46, but doesn't talk about them until 49 when he begins his lectures. George Van Tassel sets up the giant rock UFO community and has his contact in 1953. And uh, the Orantia cult, the UFO cult, is founded in 1954, although they claim they were meeting in the 1920s. They just weren't telling anyone. And their book, the Orantia book, is published in 1955. So you have those as sort of the the big cases. But right. for every- And that's basically... It's the same impulses, but it has a science fiction cosmology right. bolted onto it. So basically, these people are doing in the real occult space what we've previously just discussed Lovecraft doing in the literary space of bolting science fiction onto older impulses. Right. The, the, taking these or science old, reality, if you've been picked right, up yeah. by a UFO. Yeah, take, taking these old uh, mystical impulses and making them explicable in a 20th century world. And that's what UFO cults basically do their angel cults just you know at the time they thought we wouldn't need angel cults anymore how wrong they were if you're wanting to meet or learn about any of these things fate magazine begins publishing in 1948 curtis fuller is co-publishing it with raymond palmer so it's going on endlessly about the shaver mystery and the deros and the weird sadomasochistic hollow earth also previously discussed as previously discussed palmer uh, leaves fate in 1953 uh, curtis buys him out and then it goes wide. It blows up when it's no longer about Deros and is about all kind of UFO information. And if you are curious about what is going on in the world of the wacky in the 50s, there's no better way than to find an issue of fate from the month you're curious about. And, and not just read the articles, but check out the ads in back. Speaking of ads in back of things, the Amwork, the uh, Ancient and Mystic Order of the Rosy Cross, uh, Rosicrucians are still ticking along just fine in San Jose. The son of H. Spencer Lewis, the great American Rosicrucian, is running it. The guy named Ralph Maxwell Lewis, Manly Palmer Hall, as discussed previously on the show, writes his book, Secret Destiny of America, in 1944. So the war feeds occultism as opposed to burying it in one case. But over the next 15 years, he begins to get crotchety and, uh, you know, he's an occult curmudgeon, which while I can carry it off, many people cannot. <laughs> in terms of old uh, traditions, we have the Crowleyite Agape Lodge in Southern California. They stopped meeting in 1949. They basically began to peter out. Their most famous member, of course, is rocket scientist, alchemist, and weirdo John Whiteside Parsons. He blows himself up in his lab in 1952, which is four years after his pupil and co-magicker L. Ron Hubbard has run off with his wife. If you're looking for new religions and mystical woo and UFOs, then Scientology gets founded in 1955. It's right in the name, he's bolting science fiction onto uh, mysticism as if he had studied all of those things and knew what he was doing. As if he had at least written a lot of those things. Yeah. Israel Regardi, see previous segment. He's basically in retirement, but uh, the other dean of the Golden Dawn in America, Paul Foster case, is still running correspondence schools. He's in Boston. It's called the Ageless Wisdom School. 
It's a version of his old Builders of the Aditum Golden Dawn offshoot. And he's still, you know, writing books and uh, sending away correspondence courses. Then there's a couple of, I don't want to say nascent because they're fairly big and active, but they will blow up and be much bigger in the 60s. But the center of the L.A. scene after the, or actually as the Crowleyites are fading out, is a dandy and esthete named Samson DeBriar. And he starts running an occult salon, which includes tarot readings even before the New American Tarots come out, at his bungalow, which he names the Pleasure Dome in Hollywood. And uh, that starts around 45, 46 after he gets off war work, featuring a very, very young Kenneth Anger, Curtis Harrington. Speaking of directors, Parsons shows up along with Marjorie Cameron, his new Scarlet Woman. Igor Stravinsky will drop by. Ray Bradbury was a frequent guest. These are just the 40s and 50s guests. In the 60s, Jack Nicholson discovers it, and uh, it, be, it sort of has a revival again, as everything occult does. And it's a whole different, more sort of scenester scene in the 60s. At this point, it's still just uh, weirdos who want to hang around with Samson DeBriar. And then in New York, Weiser Bookstore, the uh, longest running occult bookstore, I think, in the Eastern Seaboard, is sort of the the headquarters or the focus of the occult scene. Other occult bookstores will blow up in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Also, there is a surrealist circle in New York City, not headed by Kurt Seligman, because he got excommunicated from surrealism by Andre Breton when he corrected him about the tarot, which I would talk about places I'm going in my time machine. I would love to see that. Who didn't get excommunicated by Andre Breton? But a, an argument about the tarot is so perfect. Well, probably the argument was that Seligman said that it was real, and Breton said that it was a symbolic. And uh, Seligman also probably corrected him on stuff. Yeah. But Seligman moves to New York City in 1940, and he's writing very, very large, very beautifully illustrated, because he's a painter, works of the occult, of occult history, one of which I own, although I think it's a, a fix-up of, of his older book. Meanwhile, uh, Hilaribe, the art collector and gallerist, she advises uh, Solomon Guggenheim and therefore basically gets to found an art museum with his collection, which becomes the Guggenheim. She's a theosophist and is impelled by that. There's a Kabbalah school on the Lower East Side run by a guy named Reb Naftali Abulafia. No relation, I think, but who can say? And those two people draw the occultist and musicologist Harry Smith to New York. He moves to New York in 1951 from the West Coast. And then, unconnected to any of those people, we know that at least in 1942, there was an elderly group of Satanists that met on the Upper West Side because the screenwriter of the great Val Luton film Seventh Victim went to the RKO Publicity and Research Department and said, are there Satanists in New York? And they asked around and they said, there sure are. <laughs> and so he got permission to go sit in on a meeting if he was quiet and didn't interrupt. And mostly what they did was they knitted and cast spells cursing Hitler. So Satanists, they may have been, but they were patriots yeah. as well. The tradition of the uh, good guy, anti-authoritarian Satanist continues to this day. Exactly. And so the Satanists were there and one assumes probably just sort of ticked along, continuing as these things did in an underground. Obviously, I, I don't think this is news to anyone listening, but the occult scene in America, especially before the 60s, was intimately tied up with the experimental drug scene. So if you were doing mescaline with Aldous Huxley, you were probably also into the occult in some way. And it was also, as Samson DeBriar demonstrates, a node on the gay underground scene. So if you were 
part of that, you were also drifting into the occult, whether you wanted to or not, because that's where you met. And anything you sort of had to keep on the DL, especially uh, between the coasts, it was probably connected to drugs or gay meetups because that was the other thing you had to keep on the DL and all those things sort of tend to aggregate together, right? Right. And all of those things come together, for example, with uh, Kenneth Anger, who exactly. uh, passed away. So I guess the, the next unasked question is, where are we now in the, the wave pattern? So there was a big upturn in the 60s. And then I guess the next upturn wave was uh, the 80s and the New Age movement, which, of course, Mm -hmm. it's always a repackaging of the previous thing. Where are we now? And and is there a is it just time? The one thing exhausts itself and the questioners go to the to the other thing. Or is there a relationship between particular sorts of wars? The World War One and Vietnam seemed to stimulate occult activity. World War Two uh, seemed to tamp it down. W- where are we now in our uh, cultural relationship to occultism on one hand and more mainstream slash not mainstream religious revival? I, I think that one thing that the 60s did do was it set up a permanent infrastructure in a way that even the 1900s and 19-teens did not. Uh, there are now Wiccan congregations or neo-pagan congregations broadly everywhere in America. There's a, you know, a Wiccan chaplain at, you know, the Air Force Academy, for gosh sakes. It is harder for it to disappear. You know, the, the waves are, are washing higher up on the beach, even if they pull back from uh, the previous high, which I would say probably culminated around Y2K because we were coming off the harmonic convergence, the 90s, were a big era for alternative thought, you know, X-Files all the way down, you know, but also charmed shows like that, that uh, were very much about popular witch culture. And I feel like the sort of new religious impulse in many ways is being, I don't want to say frittered away, but let's say damped down as people are finding it ever easier to, for example, explore Buddhism. If you want an alternative to Christianity, you don't necessarily have to go follow some weirdo, you can just go online and, and become a Buddhist. And that's a perfectly good result for, I think, people that in other times would have become Rosicrucians. And uh, again, that popular Buddhism begins in America in the 40s and 50s, but it really blows up in the 60s and 70s. And so there are sort of, I don't want to say breakers, but I think there are. There's breakers preventing a gigantic wave of occult mania from cresting in the same way that it did in the 60s and in the 20s. Although I I would argue that, in fact, an occult mania is on the go right now, and that's QAnon. Right. Because that has an occult mythology. It has, just as the UFO cults did, it has people drawing in their everyday mundane existence, and in this case, particularly politics, into a bizarre counter mythology. And if you are looking for direction... And that direction you're looking for is not, you know, the the harmony of detachment and meditation, but uh, something weirder and darker. That role is now being taken uh, by QAnon and probably some of the same people. If you go back a step during the global war on terror, that was Sharia panic. Before that, they had satanic panic. It's the same set of impulses and the same personality profiles repeating with a different, I guess, uh, flavor text is what we would call it in gaming. Mm-hmm. I feel like things like QAnon, while one can, you know, with Marx say that everything feeds the religious impulse, but I think that something like QAnon is a different sort of phenomenon than something like even Golden Dawn, 
speaking of things that weirdos get up to when they're alive. Yeah, worse hats for right, one thing. Yeah. The hats aren't as the good. The hats aren't as good. And uh, Gerald Sears' original question focused on mysticism, spirituality, and strange religion, which I feel like is a it's a different category. It's a different type of animal than conspiratorial ideation. Conspiratorial ideation, obviously, as you say, fills a lot of the social role of a cult, behaves a lot as a cult, and in some extreme cases, separation from your family, et cetera, et cetera. It has a lot of the same because it's also full of charismatic gurus. But I feel and, like and there's a buck in it. I feel like it's a different kind of an animal from uh, what we're talking about. And I feel like the sort of to use the term spiritual while understanding that there are asterisks and air quotes everywhere. I feel like the spiritual component of the uncanny, the un, the unnatural, the unnormal anyway, is it's more institutionally secure now than it was certainly in the fifties and post sixties and seventies. There are, there are ways and, and paths, you know, now if you're a moody, gothy teenager, you can literally go online and your wall is full of Llewellyn books on how you're a witch or a vampire or whatever. And it's a million times easier than it was when you had to order away from uh, wiser books in New York city or uh, Dolores books in Chicago in the earlier occult revival. Right. In fact, especially if you're also into like gaming and movies and stuff, every single week, there's a podcast that will come into your electronic devices and you'll hear it. And that podcast will be back again a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askvagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from mystical lulls by joining such sumptuously robed backers as... John Buckley. Trung Boy. Craig Maloney. John Rogers. And Joshua Hillerup. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>